Almost home, what a glorious anthem. Now, you've got to be sure that, uh, you know, we don't get three-quarters of the message and you're saying to yourself, he's almost done, he's almost done. <laughs> so, by the way, that's, that is my opening illustration for this message. <laughs> We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, and uh, last week we finished our four-part study of Isaiah chapter 1. We spent several weeks on chapter 1 because it's really the introduction to the entire book, but now we need to pick up the pace, and uh, we're going to be studying Isaiah chapters 2 through 4 in a single message, so buckle up, and here we go. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, begins this way. It says, the word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, that verse should sound familiar to you because it's almost identical to chapter 1, verse 1, which says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And so Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 marks the beginning of the second major section in the book. So chapter 1 is the introductory section, and now we are beginning the second major section in the book. And when we observe chapters 2 through 4 closely, there are several grammatical and thematic features which enable us to develop an outline which is derived from the text itself. And I want to just walk you through that briefly as we begin. First, I want you to notice that this section begins in chapters two, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, with a prophecy about the glorious, righteous, and peace-filled reign of the Messiah, which will come, as chapter 2, verse 2 says, in the last days, chapter 2, verse 2. Now, it will come about that in the last days. And so this section begins with an encouragement, an end times encouragement, an eschatological encouragement. And then this section ends in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, with another prophecy about the end times and about the glorious, righteous, and peaceful reign of the Messiah, and in chapter 4, verse 2, it says that this glorious reign will come, quote, in that day. So this section begins and ends with eschatological encouragement or encouraging prophecies about the great hope that comes in the end times. And those encouragements are like bookends for this section. But in between those encouraging prophecies of the messianic hope are some discouraging realities. Discouraging realities about the current condition of Judah and Jerusalem and frankly of all mankind. As we discussed last time, Isaiah says in chapter 1 that Jerusalem had been a faithful or righteous city and that it will be a faithful righteous city again in the end times, but right now it is far from righteous. In fact, it's filled with all kinds of wickedness. And so in between those two eschatological encouragements that begin and end this section, Isaiah gives three exhortations to a wayward nation. Three exhortations to a wayward nation. And each of those exhortations is then followed by an explanation marked by the word for. 
So he gives an exhortation and then he explains why he had given that exhortation and he marks that explanation with the word for. So notice that there's an exhortation in chapter two, verse five, and then the explanation of that exhortation begins in verse six with the word for. And then after the exhortation, which occurs in chapter two, two verses 10 through 11, the explanation is given beginning in verse 12, again, marked with the word for. And finally, there's a third exhortation in chapter 2, verse 22, and the explanation for that one begins in chapter 3, verse 1, yet again with the word for. And so there are three exhortations, and then there are explanations of why those exhortations are being given. So when we look at the whole outline, we see that our passage begins and ends with eschatological encouragements, and then in between, there are three exhortations followed by explanations of why those exhortations are being given. And so we're gonna see eschatological encouragement in chapter two, verses two through four, the first exhortation in chapter two, verse five, an explanation of that in chapter two, verses six through nine, the second exhortation in chapter two, verses 10 through 11, an explanation of that exhortation in chapter two, verses 12 through 21, and then the third exhortation in chapter two, verse 22, followed by two explanatory sections, the first in chapter three, verses one through 15, and then an additional explanation that is added in chapter three, verses 16, which continues all the way to chapter four, verse one. And then this section ends with a great final eschatological encouragement, eschatological, eschatological hope, end times hope, in chapter four, verses two through six. So let's move our way through this outline beginning in chapter two, verses two through four, the opening section in which Isaiah provides the people with powerful eschatological encouragement, end times hope. Chapter two, beginning in verse two. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. This is eschatological encouragement. This is end times hope. I want you to notice that verse two is a promise. It says, it will come about. It will come about. This is a promise. And notice when the promise comes about. It says, it will come about in the last days. The fulfillment of this promise is still future. Next, notice where it's going to take place. It's gonna take place, verse two says, on the mountain of the house of the Lord. And other references to this phrase in the Old Testament make it clear that this is a reference to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that, of course, is confirmed in verse three because 
the phrase, the house of the God of Jacob appears, the term Zion appears, and then there is a direct statement that this has to do with the holy city of Jerusalem. Verse three ends by saying, the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, when I read passages like this, it's hard for me to understand how our dear amillennial brothers and sisters in Christ can miss the fact that numerous Old Testament passages repeatedly and clearly and unmistakably prophesy a future for Israel and a literal reign of Jesus the Messiah from Jerusalem in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. I don't know how they miss it. The only way is to completely allegorize this passage and there's no warrant to allegorize it. There's no markers of allegory here, but rather direct, clear, future historical prophecy. Three things are promised to Jerusalem in this passage, promised about Jerusalem. First, Jerusalem will be raised to prominence. Look at verse two. Now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord, that's the temple mount, will be established as the chief of the mountains and it will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Jerusalem will be raised to prominence. Secondly, Jerusalem will be the destination of righteous pilgrimage. Verse three, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem will be the destination for righteous pilgrimage. The nations will say, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the Temple Mount and let's listen there to the word of the Messiah. There, Jerusalem will be the capital of Messiah's rule of peace. Verse four, he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. On Thursday, I was uh, on a video chat with a regional Ukrainian leader. I was shocked by how much weight he's lost, by how gaunt he looked, by how much he seems to have aged in this last year. But 12 months of nonstop ministry in the midst of all of the carnage and suffering happening there have clearly taken a toll on him. I had the opportunity to pray for him and hopefully in the days ahead we'll be able to come alongside the network of churches that he leads. It was especially tough to have that conversation because it came in the aftermath of that terrible Russian missile strike on the apartment building that killed dozens of mostly women and children. And it is in the midst of these type of great sorrows and tragedies that the promise of verse four rings out as being so precious. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. I've seen the devastation and the sorrows of war firsthand both in 2014 and now again in this war. It's horrible, it's devastating and it leaves people truly shattered. But here's a promise. There's gonna come a day when a righteous ruler will establish world peace, true shalom. 
Never again will they learn war. In just a few chapters, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is going to say that the Messiah will be the prince of what? The prince of peace. When he returns, he will bring the world peace that we have failed to achieve over and over and over again. We can sing all the sappy songs we want. We can hold hands and sway. We can do all of the conferences and all of the treaties and all of that, and mankind will always shed blood until the Prince of Peace comes. And he will put an end to war. How? Because he will judge between the nations. And he will render decisions for the peoples. And he will bring peace. They will take their instruments of war and hammer them into instruments of prosperity. Plowshares and pruning hooks to bring in the harvest. That's eschatological encouragement. That's good news. Well, after the encouragement of chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, comes an exhortation. And that exhortation is in verse 5. Come to the light. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 5. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the first exhortation. Come to the light. Come to the light. This reminds us of the invitation given in chapter 1 verse 18 remember chapter 1 verse 18 said come and let us reason together says the Lord though your sins are as scarlet they will be as white as snow this is the invitation to come to the truth and holiness of God to receive forgiveness of sins through the grace of the Messiah come and let us walk in the light of the Lord leave your deeds of darkness come to the light of God's truth and his righteousness this is the first exhortation And the reason why that exhortation was necessary is explained in verses six through nine. They're being beckoned to come into the light because they'd fallen into darkness. The nation had plunged into spiritual darkness. Chapter two, verses six through nine. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east. They're soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has been filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. So the common man has been humbled and the man of importance has been abased but do not forgive them. The nation is plunged into spiritual darkness. Verse seven says that they were materially wealthy. And then it says, but they were spiritually bankrupt. Materially wealthy, filled with gold and horses and chariots, but also filled with idols and wickedness. Materially wealthy, spiritually bankrupt. Sound familiar? think we're a lot that way aren't we they had become enamored with the pagan religions of the east they incorporated the cultic practices of the philistines they had filled the land with idols and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator just as paul writes about in romans chapter one and the only solution 
to this plunge into darkness is to repent and come to the light. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Sadly, verse 9 is a prophecy that God's invitation to repent given in verse 5 would be rejected and therefore the people's sin would not be forgiven. And so there is then a second very sobering exhortation given in verses 10 through 11. Enter the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. This is the second exhortation and it is a sobering one. It is the exhortation to bow in the dust, to fall on your face in abject humility and repentance before God. I want you to notice the contrast between the first exhortation and the second one. The first invitation is very positive. Come to the light. But once that exhortation is refused, now comes a much more sobering, more hard, more more warning exhortation. Bow in the dust before the terror of the Lord comes. If you reject the invitation to come and let us reason together so that your sins, though like scarlet, may be white as snow, if you reject the invitation to come to the light of the Lord, then the Lord will warn you, fall on your face, bury your face in the dust of the ground because the terror of the Lord is coming. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is exactly what is going to happen to all who refuse to repent. The wrath of God is coming like the blade of a mower that cuts down the weed which is sticking out over the grass. The proud look of man will be abased and the loftiness of man will be humbled. Man's pride will be cut down. And that will be the result if you refuse to repent. And so the exhortation here is to humble yourself so that you don't have to be humbled by God. Isaiah is exhorting them, throw yourself face down on the rocks. Bury your face in the dust before the terror of the Lord comes and cuts you down. A day is coming in which the proud will be humbled and only one name will be exalted. The Lord alone, verse 11 says, will be exalted on that day. Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 45 that God says, every knee will bow to me. That's quoted by Paul in Philippians chapter two when it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, a day is coming when the Lord alone will be exalted and every knee will bow. So it is far better to fling yourself into the dust now than to be cut down on the day of judgment. That great blade of God's wrath is coming. Duck under it while you still can. Well, after that sobering exhortation comes an even more sobering explanation chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. Why 
should you bow in the dust explanation the day of the Lord is coming the day of the Lord is coming chapter 2 verses 12 through 21 for the Lord of hosts will have a day against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up that he may be abased. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft. The pride of man will be humbled and the loftiness of men will be abased and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But the idols will completely vanish. Men will go into caves of the rocks and into holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. In that day, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold which they made for themselves to worship in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he arises to make the earth tremble. The day of the Lord is coming. I want you to notice that verse 17 is virtually identical to verse 11. Two times he says that the pride of man will be humbled, the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. He says in verse 11, he says it again in verse 17. He's reminding them that two key objectives will be accomplished in the day of the Lord. The wicked will be humbled and the righteous one will be exalted. So humble yourself now while you still can and exalt the Lord now while you still can. Don't wait until the day because on that day, that appointed day, the day that is coming, if you have not humbled yourself, you will be humbled. I want you also to notice that verses, verse 10, verse 19, and verse 21 all contain an identical phrase. The terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Three times. Three times we're reminded to flee from the terror of the Lord and to hide ourselves from the splendor of his majesty. Friends, God is not someone to be trifled with he is someone to be terrified of. Now what I just said goes against the grain of 99% of modern preaching. In our day, even amongst Christians, it's virtually unheard of for someone to talk about fearing God, especially not to talk about it as being a good thing. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If he wanted, if he meant the respect of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord, he would have written the respect of the Lord or the reverence of the Lord. That's not what he wrote. He wrote the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In other words, if you haven't learned to be afraid of God, you haven't learned anything yet. The scripture exhorts us to fear God. For centuries, up until just a couple decades ago, someone who walked with God was called what? A God-fearing man. 
we've lost the fear of God. Lest you think that fearing God is exclusively an Old Testament concept, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That, by the way, is a command. Fear him. One of the most widespread theological errors in our circles and in our day is the idea that fearing God is somehow antithetical to loving him. But even an earthly father can be both loved and feared at the same time. My father loved me very much and I loved him. But I can tell you, when my mother said, wait until your father gets home, my seven-year-old knees began to knock. And that was a good thing. Because my father and his authority and his discipline stood in between me like an impassable wall between me and the cliffs of my own sin and the evils that would have ensnared and enslaved and eventually destroyed me. He stood as a barrier, a barrier of righteous fear between me and the sins which kill, steal, and destroy. Even an earthly father can be both loved and feared at the same time, and that is certainly also true of God. Fearing God is not a denial of grace nor a denial of God's love. In fact, fearing God magnifies his grace. Who is more grateful for a pardon? The man who has been told he has no reason to fear the judge. Or the man who heard the death sentence read out, was led to the gallows, had a noose placed around his neck, and felt the trap door moving under his feet before he was given a last minute reprieve. Who is more grateful for the pardon? The one who never feared, or the one who trembled as he felt the trap door under his feet begin to shake? Who loves the Savior more? The one with no understanding of the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty? Or the one who knows what's written in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 31, that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God and who knows what Hebrews 12, 29 says when it says, our God is a consuming fire. Who loves the Savior more? The one who has never feared or the one who has feared and been granted grace? Beloved, there's a reason why the Great Awakening was not sparked by a sermon called God Loves You Because You're So Special. The Great Awakening in this country was not sparked by a sermon called God Loves You Because You're So Special. It was sparked by a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. Why was that sermon so much more powerful than the trite things that are preached today? Well, Jesus explains it in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, when he said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven loves little. Who, who, who is forgiven little, loves little. You know, if, you know, today we have a lot of believers who are like, you know, I, I love Jesus. I'm, I'm really grateful he, you know, saved me from my little mistakes. You know, my little flubs. I'm not perfect. Glad Jesus saved me from my minor imperfections they love little because they think they've been forgiven little 
But he who has been forgiven much, Jesus said, loves much. This is why it's so important to teach people about the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Because when they understand that, they'll understand grace. And they'll understand how precious the love of God really is. Faithful expositors of scripture periodically preach fire and brimstone sermons and you might be sitting there saying, this is starting to sound like one. And it is. Why do we do that? Is it because we don't believe in the love of God and we don't believe in the grace of God? No. We preach hellfire and brimstone because it's in the text. And it is a reality people have to know. When it's in the text, we don't shrink back from proclaiming it because it is our sacred duty and obligation to you to tell you the truth. To warn you of it. Flee from their wrath to come. But there's another reason. We preach hellfire and brimstone when it's in the text and as often as it's in the text, which is often, because we know that it is not until a person understands how much they've been forgiven that they truly begin to love God and worship him for his amazing grace. You know, sometimes I've wondered, what would the hymn Amazing Grace sound like if it had been written by a modern American evangelical? It would probably say something like this. Tepid grace, how bland the sound that lifted the self-esteem of a person as special as me. Now, if that sounded not only trite to you, but almost blasphemous, it's because it is. Grace is amazing because it saved a wretch, a wretch like me and like you. Me, a sinful wretch, someone who Jonathan Edwards correctly described in his revival-launching sermon as being before God like a loathsome spider dangling by the slenderest of threads over a great fiery pit. That wretch was saved by the grace of God and adopted into the family of God, made a co-heir with Christ. That's amazing. Instead of casting me into the fires of hell, God has adopted me as a son. He's made me a co-heir with Christ. I now can stand under that great Romans 8:1 verdict. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's amazing grace. And grace becomes amazing when you understand the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. Well, it's because grace is so amazing that a third exhortation is given in chapter two, verse 22. And the exhortation is simply this. Stop esteeming man. Stop esteeming man. Look at chapter two, verse 22. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed? The text has been saying the Lord alone is going to be exalted. So stop regarding and esteeming mortal fallen man. This is going to get in our kitchens right now. Because this verse directly contradicts a secular, godless concept which has made its way into the thinking and the teaching and the preaching and the parenting of millions of Christians. What idea am I referring to? 
Well, the idea that one of the most important tasks of preachers and parents and teachers and everybody else is to teach children to raise their self-esteem. Raising your self-esteem is presented as the cure for almost every ailment of man. It's the great solution, the great hope. If we can just give self-esteem, James Dobson, who's done so many wonderful things, did say something that I think was very unbiblical once. He was asked, if you could give one gift to the people of the world, what would it be? What do you think his answer was? The gospel? He said, higher self-esteem. That's tragic. In direct contradiction to our modern infatuation with self-esteem, chapter two, verse 22 says, stop regarding man. Stop esteeming the mortal creature instead of the immortal creator. Don't build the house of your hope on sand. Build it on the rock. Stop telling kids to think more highly of themselves and start teaching them to think more highly of God. Wait a minute, here comes the objections. I can, I can hear them, I've heard them. If we stop teaching kids to have high self-esteem, won't they fall into depression? Won't there be more suicides? Won't there be all these things? I wanna turn that question back around. Self-esteem, the self-esteem rage has now been ubiquitous everywhere in society in parenting, preaching, teaching everywhere in society for decades. What is its fruit? After several decades of making self-esteem our highest societal, educational, and parental priority, are people happier? The answer is clearly no. The emperor has no clothes. The self-esteem model of human happiness has clearly failed. Since, ever since, boosting self-esteem became the dominant way people attempt to achieve, achieve happiness, the population has become more depressed than ever, more hopeless than ever, sadder than ever. Why? I'm gonna explain it to you very simply. Self-esteem can't bring true joy for the same reason a mirror gives poor hugs. Just think about that. Self-esteem can't bring you true joy for the same reason a mirror gives poor hugs hugs you don't get a lot of nutrients by regurgitating your own food and re-swallowing it do you why is that see the issue here is love and love by its very nature has to be given it has to be given to another and joy comes in the giving and in the receiving of love this is not something that's all that complicated. Parents, you know it instinctively. When your kid is sad and crying, do you look at your crying little one and say, tell you what, why don't you go to your room and give yourself a big hug? Why don't you say that? Go to your room and just give yourself a great big hug. You know that would be empty. Why? Because there's no giving and therefore no receiving of love. What do you do when your child is crying? You say, come to me. And you give them a hug. And they hug you back. And in the giving 
and receiving that mutual giving of love comes the joy and comes the comfort and comes the happiness that God intends. True love must be given. And Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So trying to find happiness through self-esteem is like trying to get nutrients by regurgitating your food. It's as futile as trying to feel loved by hugging a mirror. True joy requires true giving, and true giving starts with giving glory to God. Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. Why should he be esteemed? Instead, what does the scripture say? Humble yourself before the Lord, and what? He will lift you up. Not you will lift you up. He will lift you up. Well, there's an explanation then for this exhortation in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And the explanation of why we should stop a seeming man is because men are mortal and morally fallen and morally corrupt. It's a foundation of sand. Don't build your house on it. It's going to fall. For behold... Chapter 3, verse 1 says, The Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread, the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them, and the people will be oppressed, each one by another and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler and these ruins will be under your charge he will protest on that day saying I will not be your healer for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak you should not appoint me ruler of the people for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence the expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom they do not even conceal it woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves say to the righteous that it will go well with them for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. Oh, my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who guide you, lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and the princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. This is an incredible explanation of why mankind is not to be esteemed. Notice that chapter 3, verse 1 begins with the phrase, the Lord God of hosts, and chapter 3, verse 15 ends with the same phrase, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord God of the heavenly armies is going to come and enter into judgment. It's coming. And even the mightiest of men, the most powerful of men are utterly incapable of saving anyone. Men are mortal and fallen. Now in chapter three, verse 16, 
there's an additional explanation introduced. So normally there's one explanation section. This time there's a second one added and it's indicated by a conjunction at the beginning of verse 16. And I wanted to point this out to you because the ESV, uh, though they have a section break here uh, based on this conjunction, don't do a good job of bringing out its meaning Uh, in the New American Standard, New King James, it's a little clearer because chapter three, verse 16 begins with the word moreover or in addition. Moreover, and here comes the second explanation. The Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet. Therefore, the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, fessel robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils, and all the modern equivalents. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle. And her gates will lament and mourn. And deserted and alone, she will sit on the ground. For seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Second explanation is this. Not only have the mighty men failed to save, but the women are also incapable of saving the society. They're also mortal and fallen, just like the men. Hope can't be found in the men. Hope can't be found in the women. The men have shamelessly displayed their sin and are not even ashamed of it like Sodom and the women are completely consumed with materialistic vanity. The deterioration of society is reaching such a low point that judgment is becoming unavoidable and verses 25 through 26 of chapter 3 prophesy an incredible devastation that's coming The men of Jerusalem are going to fall in battle. In fact, six out of every seven men will be killed. Chapter four, verse one tells us that for every seven women, only one man will be left. And so I want you to notice a theme which is in both of these explanatory sections, and that is the dearth of men, the absence of men. In chapter three, verses six through seven, it says, it says, When a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying, you have a cloak, why don't you be our ruler? These ruins will be under your charge. He will protest sometimes, they say, I will not be your healer, for in my house there's neither bread nor cloak. Don't appoint me ruler of the people. A brother is gonna grab hold of his brother saying, you lead us. Take charge of these ruins. Save us, do something. No, 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 I can't, I can't help you. I can't do anything. Chapter four. Now the women are taking hold of one man saying, we'll eat our own bread, wear our own clothes. Just let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. As a result of God's judgment, the society will be looking for a few good men and will fail to find them. 
One of the surest signs a society is coming under the judgment of God is when men are either unable or unwilling to lead. Like chapter three, verses six through seven describes. Or when women can't find a good man to marry. Both are happening in our day. Where are the men who are willing to lead and lead spiritually? Where are the good men for our young women? Where are they? Men arise. Men of God arise. You are needed. Well, is there hope? This is a prophecy of what's coming in the, especially in the tribulation period. There's a near fulfillment in the Babylonian exile and then the far and final fulfillment in the time of Jacob's trouble in the tribulation period. But is there hope? Hope for Jerusalem, hope for Judah, hope for this wicked world. Is there hope for us? And the answer is found in the final section, which is the great eschatological encouragement found in chapter four, verses two through six. In that day, so here you have all this devastation and all of this hopelessness, but in that day, the branch of Yahweh, the branch of the Lord, will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. There will be a shelter to give shade from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. There is hope, and that hope is a person. It is the Messiah. It is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, who here is called the branch of the Lord. And the sacred name of God appears here, literally the branch of Yahweh. Why does Isaiah use such a strange term for the Messiah, the branch of Yahweh? Well, first of all, this term has Trinitarian implications. A branch and a plant are of the same nature. So when the Messiah is called the branch of Yahweh, Isaiah is saying the Messiah is no mere mortal. He is God. He is the Son of God. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, he says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. What? Mighty God. The branch of Yahweh, that term has Trinitarian implications. But secondly, Isaiah uses this term to connect the meaning of this prophecy back to the Davidic covenant. He's connecting the coming of the Messiah to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We don't have time to turn there, but let me just point to you uh, for your own reading. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1-5, through 5, which are David's last words. And in David's last words, he reflects on God's promise to him in the Davidic covenant, and he says at the end, this promised kingdom, he says, will it not grow? 
Won't this promise that God has given, won't he cause it to blossom and grow, to spring out and shoot up? What word does he use there? He uses tzamak, which is the verbal form of the word branch, which Isaiah uses in chapter four, verse two. Psalm 132, verses 17 through 18 also speaks of this. Quote, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. That's tzamak, the same word as the word branch from Isaiah 4.2. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed, and this is the term for Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. The Messiah is also called the branch or the root in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah in multiple passages. And so it is this divine branch of Yahweh this coming divine Messiah who will come from the line of David and he will return to rule and reign to render decisions and he will create this kingdom of peace in which the plowshares are, or the swords are beaten into plowshares and they never again learn war. So in chapter four, verses two through six, we see a clear prophetic summary of the eschatological future. What's coming? What's coming, and the center here is Jerusalem and Judah. What's coming in the future in Jerusalem and Judea? Three things. A reckoning, a remnant, and a restoration. The day of reckoning will come. The remnant will be saved. And then the glorious restoration will come. Isaiah prophesies that a day of reckoning is coming in which the wrath of God is poured out on the unrepentant. This is reference to the tribulation period. And after the reckoning, there will be a remnant in Israel that has been saved and purified. Chapter four, verse two says this. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and adornment of the survivors of Israel, the remnant. It will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day, even smoke, the brightness of a flaming fire by night, for over all the glory will be a canopy. First reckoning, the salvation of the remnant, and then the great restoration of the Shekinah glory of God. Remember Ezekiel had seen the Shekinah glory depart the temple, depart Jerusalem, and ascend to heaven. There is coming a day when Christ returns and he will enter Jerusalem and take his place on the temple mount and the Shekinah glory of God will cover the mount, uh, the temple mount and over all of Jerusalem and the pillar of fire, the same one that led the nation of Israel out of Egypt and that cloud will be there and the glory of the Lord will be there and Isaiah says it will be beautiful and glorious that's our eschatological hope God's going to keep all his promises including his promises to Israel and to Jerusalem well, what's the application for us are you ready day of reckoning's coming have you been grafted in to this messianic hope by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ And are you looking for and awaiting his glorious appearing? Lord, we give you thanks that you are a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And Lord, we thank you that 
in a section of your word which in the middle is so dark in the confrontation of human sin. Lord, you bracket it at the beginning and the end with a message of hope. May our hearts take hold of the hope brought to us by the gospel of Jesus the Messiah who died for us, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, is seated at your right hand awaiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet but will come again soon to rule and reign fulfilling the Davidic covenant from Jerusalem and bringing that long awaited and much prayed for world peace. We give you praise that all these things are coming and that we have this hope in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a